Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host, we are on to episode 107. My guest today is Marcus Bashad, and he is the author of two books and some upcoming books as well. But his two that he has out now is Junk Knowledge and The Darkest Chapter, A Messy Guide to Dual Diagnosis. So Marcus comes on to the podcast and he talks about his story and journey of addiction and getting sober. But more importantly, he talks about dealing with his own dual diagnosis of bipolar disorder and how he gets support and help and walks through that process and creates his life that feels good for him, moving out of depression and hypomania to a place where he feels good and productive and is really enjoying his life. A super energetic conversation, it was great talking to Marcus and, and getting to know him and getting to know his story. You can tell he's passionate and passionate about getting this story out to others so they can understand that they're not alone or that they can get support. So I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. Once again, if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes. I love reading those reviews. It is really helpful and I appreciate it. And it gets this podcast a lot of exposure and so people can hear it and get the support that they need. And if you know somebody who could benefit from the podcast, please share it with them. That would be great as well. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join and continue the conversation online there. All right, let's start this episode. All right, everyone, this is our second attempt to start this interview. My guest today is Marcus Mershad, and he is the author of A Darker Chapter, A Messy Guide to Dual Diagnosis and Junk Knowledge. And Marcus, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your story, your story of addiction, struggling with addiction and dual diagnosis, and then we'll get into how you wrote your books and we'll talk about it all. My name is Marcus Marchand. I'm a recovering alcoholic and a published author and all that good stuff. I, uh, before the books and everything, and before I be, even became 
healthy in any way. <laughs> I was, I was, I was a problem child. No, I, uh, <laughs> <You're a> pro- <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, I was, I'm 41 years old now. And my, my sobriety date is, uh, November 26, 2001. So I've got close to 19 years. I'm almost there. Um, I was born 1979, January 2nd, um, just outside of Portland, Oregon. I live in San Francisco now, been here a while. And, uh, I, th- I don't know if I was born anyway. I don't know if I was born an addict. I, I don't know if I was had a predisposition. It, it runs in the family on both sides of my family. Right, right, yeah. But something something spoke to you when it comes to addiction. Um, yeah, I was born in 1979. I uh, was the first grandchild. I was my mom's first child. She had a, she also, I also have a brother who's about seven years younger than me. But um, I was, I got accustomed to, in the very beginning, I got accustomed to, all the attention, all the gifts, all the everything. And, you know, the first few Christmases was all about me, which was great. And I didn't know that it ever changed. And when uh, my brother came along, when cousins came along, there was competition for attention and started to take all that away. Yeah. It's like, I, I started having to perform more. I had to be funnier. It, I just took it on as a challenge and I became like a comedian and everything. And, and people loved it, but every, but you know, there were other kids to, to, to be around and, yeah. And I, I didn't hate it, but I was, I had, I was irked, you know, and like right. sharing and yeah, it's just like. And often, you know, when, when we, you know, when we work on ourselves, we get sober, we realize some of the root of our addictive processes are in our past and in our childhood and stuff like that. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I, I it's got, I think it's hundred percent. Like everybody's going to have to deal with the past. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, we are yeah, our so, past, right? Yeah. I, uh, my mom got remarried when I was five years old. So there was a stepdad in the picture and, uh, they, they had my second, my, my brother together. And so there was a lot of conflict between me and my stepdad and just all that. A lot of people, a lot of step kids have that story. And I ended up leaving home really early. I left home at 15. And uh, my grandmother kind of quasi adopted me, but I was, I was a latchkey kid and I was on my own now. And I, so I went from living way out in the country, out on a farm and my stepdad was in tech and he's this uber math genius. And, and I was just a kid and we didn't get along. We were totally different. I'm kind of an artist and we think right, right. it's like, it, it was, it was rough. We did not get along and my mom's in the middle of it. It was tumultuous. So kind of on your own. Yeah. And at first I was like, this is great. And, but then it was like, there's no money. I, I was on my own financially. I just remember having to buy my own like pants and everything for ninth grade and 10th grade and all that. I was like, I was on my own. It was weird. Wow. So all my friends, all my regular normal friends were with their parents' house and things were normal for them. And I was just like lost for years. And that when I was 15, 16, I transitioned into drinking and drugs and, and I had a good time. It did a lot of things for me. I forgot about all the pain of not being around family. Right. Yeah. About being poor. It's, I mean, like alcohol and drugs are great for forgetting that you're broke. Right. <laughs> or forgetting any beginning. pain that you have. It, yeah. It yeah. It's wonders. all gone. It's all gone. So, and I got into the psychedelics. I got into the ecstasy. I, I never got into like the meth or anything, but. I experimented a little bit. So it's just started to progress from there. Yeah, quickly, quickly, really fast. Because from the age of 15 to 22, I used every day. I used something, but then I quit wow. at 22. So most of my story isn't really about my using. I didn't, I'm not, I don't have a 35 year career of using things. Right, right, yeah. 
It was short. It was fast. I had a lot of fun. So what made you, what made you decide to say, okay, hey, this isn't working for me. Like, I got to stop. I got to do something. Okay. So where it starts, where I wanted to stop, it was, um, it was Christmas Eve 2000 of the year 2000. And I was, I was working in restaurants and bars and uh, it was a great time. I'm in Portland, living in Portland, my great Northwest Portland neighborhood by Powell's bookstore and all that. I was right, a right. hipster kid. And, you know, I was working at a really cool restaurant and uh, all my friends were at a bar, the Tiger Bar, and they all called me and I had the flu. I had like 103 degree temperature. I was sweating. I was sick. And they call me like, we're at the Tiger Bar. They're playing your favorite drum and bass music. You got to come down. And I'm coughing and sneezing and gross and I'm pale and I'm, I'm just all oily and gross looking. Whoa. So I took a shower and I went down there and I'm like, let's do it. And I'm, I'm in this big booth with all my friends. There's like 10 of us and I'm in the booth. And I remember going to the bathroom and, and just washing my hands and my face in the mirror. I looked like, I looked like an old man and I'm 21 at the time. Wow. And then I go back to the booth and I was just like, I remember someone took a photo, a picture of all of us, like having a good time supposedly. And I just, I had to walk back. I lived like four blocks from where we were. And then when I got better, I went back to work and a friend of mine showed me the photo and everybody looked normal and looked like they were having a good time. But I looked like a skeleton in the photo. And I was just, wow. visually, I was like, I've got a problem. And I'm, I'm 21 years old and I look like I was 15. Right, and it right. was bad. But you knew, but there's something in you said, this isn't right. This is like, this isn't right. And, but I would continue until, the, until Thanksgiving of the next year. So for another year, I just kept trying. Right. You know, right. because. I didn't know what else to do. And I didn't have any family connection. I, I rejected them. They rejected me or I thought they rejected me. So did you start to like cut down or did you go cold Turkey or I quit cold Turkey the day after Thanksgiving of 2001. Right. So, but, but before that, I didn't know anything else, but going full throttle. Right. I didn't know how to slow down. I was just an addict. Right. You know? So I just smoked pot and drank for another 11 months ish. And then I, what happened was I, on Thanksgiving, I went out with a bunch of friends to a party at a girlfriend's house that lived maybe six blocks from me. And I left around five in the morning and I got lost. I couldn't find my apartment. So I didn't get back. I was lost for two hours. I remember getting back at like seven in the morning, um, the day after Thanksgiving. And I just remember waking up on the bathroom floor with the shower water. So I must've fallen out of the bathtub. And I woke up with my, my ribs all bruised and hurting. I couldn't breathe. And there was wow. just, it, that, was my, that was my bottom with drinking and using. And I quit. I just quit. I quit smoking. I quit everything. Wow. So you said, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. And it's funny because some people are like, had it way worse. Right. I mean, I mean, before that, before that, when I was 16, I experimented with being homeless. I lived underneath the Burnside Bridge by the famous skate park. Right. For like a summer, right? The summer of like 95, I think it was. So I was a squatter kid and everything, but so I've experienced the homelessness, all that, but I, I had a good time because I was using and yeah. drinking every day and I was, I was 16. Right. So I was just, I was a big party, but yeah, I quit everything on the day after Thanksgiving and uh, I knew I had to quit everything. I quit my restaurant job. I quit my friends. I let, I just disappeared. So I completely, you were really struggling. I mean, it, it sounds like it was more than even just the using per se. I mean, that was like, yeah felt great, but it sounds like it was even more than that. Yeah. A lot of it was mental. I mean, I, it was, I was scared. I had, I immediately had panic attacks that I'd never had before. Huge panic attacks. Wow. 
And then um, depression came rolling in, the depression immediately. Wow. And so I called my grandmother and I call my grandmother. I'm like, grandma, I quit everything. And she's like, oh, whatever. No, you didn't. I'm like, no, I quit everything and I need to come home. Like, I can't do this by myself out in the city. So I, so she's like, come back home. So I lived with her for like, I think a couple of years. Wow. And uh, I immediately joined a gym and I just stayed at the gym for hours. I would, I would, uh, I joined the Hilton Athletic Club in Portland, Oregon, and it was a spa. So I, I was there for seven hours a day, six days a week for like four years. Wow. It was crazy. It was crazy (laughs) because I didn't have any social skills without drugs and alcohol. So I didn't know how to make friends anymore. And uh, I couldn't keep a job that long. I would last a week or two, a month or two, and I'd quit or I'd get fired. Wow. And I was just, it was weird. I wasn't drinking or using, but I was basically in a sense useless. I didn't know, I didn't have any skills. I wouldn't go back to college till I was 25. So I was, I well, if I you're would, starting, you know, it. you're drinking and drugging at 15 yeah. and, and that's the way you function and you live, yeah. you have no skills. When, when you try and get sober, you don't have any skills. No if skills. You, yeah. And then if you're struggling with depression, yeah. you know, on top of that and other mental health issues, yeah, you're, you're kind of lost. It was totally horrible. But uh, I mean, I can laugh about it now because I've done the work right. and I ironed it out and I'm succeeding in life and but yeah, so I would live with my grandmother and I just, I thought I was gonna live with my grandmother for the rest of my life, honestly. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Right, yeah. I was like, it's just gonna be me and grandma forever. And, but slowly but surely, I got a therapist. Um, I would have like, my physical drinking using bottom would be, would be in 2001. I had a mental breakdown in 2006. I went back to college in 2005 and I had a full-time job and I was working out all the time and I was dating. I had, I had like, I was getting up at seven in the morning and going to bed at like three in the morning. Right, right. I did that for two years. And finally, my mind and body were just like, I can't do this anymore. And it just snapped. Wow. And I took on too much. I just, I just, I lived, I worked like an addict. I dated like an addict. I worked out like an addict. So yeah, talk, talk a little bit about that. Like talk about the depression and what that was like for you. Because I, I think people who are struggling with that. Sometimes we can just think there must just be something wrong with me. I'm, I'm just broken or something. I can't function. But sometimes it's these other issues, like what you're talking about. These, you know, in, in your second book, the on you know dual diagnosis. There's other stuff going on. So tell me a little bit about that journey because I think that's really rich for people who need to who need to hear it. Yeah. Well, first, I'm not going to say that. I know a lot of alcoholics that. In their story, they never experienced a lot of depression or anxiety. It was just, they just didn't. Right. And so they just, they once they quit drinking, their life rolled on in a good way. But then there's those like myself that had other stuff going on. And uh, yeah, in 2006, I kind of snapped and um, it was bad. I barely graduated. I got my associate's degree, but I couldn't continue on with my four year. And uh, from, from 2006 to 2010, it was just talking to psychiatrists, therapists, experimenting with medication, understanding what was going on. When you say snapped, can you describe that a little bit? Like what that means? So people understand like, what were you going through and how was your brain functioning and what were you thinking and what was your body going through? Right. So what I was going through and it happened pretty much one night. Okay. It was 2006. I was with my girlfriend and we just got back from watching the Mel Gibson movie Apocalypto. Right. And we got back, right. Great movie. And we got back to my place. It was like 1030. We went to bed around midnight and I woke up at 430 in the morning, just in a panic, like breathing. I mean, just my, my heart was coming out of my throat. 
I lived about four blocks from the hospital and I just instinctively walked to the hospital. Wow. And I was out of my mind. I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know it was anxiety. I just, I thought I was going insane. Right. Yeah. It felt like somebody, yeah, I felt like somebody just shot a bunch of adrenaline into my body. And so I walked there and they're like, oh, you're, you're suffering from anxiety. Um, you're, you have insomnia. They gave me all these terms that I'd never heard before, but this would continue for four years. I would, I, once that started, I had, I lived in a, I lived with a panic attack that never went away for four years. And it like, I started hallucinating. I started seeing things in the closet in the corner of my eye. Um, it was, I was, it was bad. It was really, really bad. And so I finally found with, I would say for about, for about two years, I was in the emergency room once a month. I would go in the, the thousand dollar ride to the hospital, the thousand dollar getting checked. It was, I mean, I was raking up two grand a month for like two years. Wow. And uh, finally I, I ran into a nurse practitioner and she introduced, she gave me a card for a psychiatrist. I called him the next day and then I met up with him within three days and we just, he helped me. This, this doctor helped me out, um, the psychiatrist. And we went for a year and a half, no medication. We just tried talking. Right. Yeah. He got me a therapist. We tried this. And, and unfortunately, I mean, and at the same time, fortunately, we figured out what it was with me. I'm also bipolar two. Okay. And yeah. Okay. So and bipolar two is different from bipolar one. And I'll just clear up what the difference is. Bipolar one is the person that's prone to full-blown mania spells where they think they're Jesus and they're riding their motorcycle naked in the street. Just crazy. Right, right, right. Very little depression. But with bipolar two, which what I have is more a depressive state with with some usually what you call seasonal hypomania. Yeah. Hypomanic. Yeah. So hypomania is you just feel good and maybe feel it maybe feels like you're on coke or something. You just feel really good for a couple of weeks and you can get a lot right. done. But you can be a little destructive too, like in that. It can be, yeah. It can be food, sex, all kind of come in uh, for a lot of people. But I volunteered with NAMI and DBSA. Like DBSA is Depression Bipolar Support Alliance, and NAMI is the National Alliance of Mental Illness. And I started going to support groups for this, for that. Right. What was it like to start to like see, like someone actually had a name for what you were going through? Like, you know, cause you're, you're like, I'm going crazy. I, you know, it's like a lot of times people think I'm, I'm, what's, what's wrong. And then actually someone can come along and say, oh, this is what's going on. Now we can work with it. Yeah. It gave me hope. I hadn't had hope for years and it gave me some hope. I met other people that had what I had. I'm like, I would meet up with people on Tuesdays and Thursdays, seven o'clock to eight o'clock meetings. And um, you sit in a circle at a big table in a hospital and you just talk. And so that helped me to understand I wasn't alone. Right. Yeah. And then eventually I would, uh, there was a guy that became my mentor and he went to AA meetings and I eventually started going to AA meetings with him. And that really blew open the doors for me because I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I just, I thought I was just crazy. Right, right, yeah. Right? So then I went to AA meetings and I was like, oh, wow, I'm an alcoholic. This is me as well. I'm an alcoholic. Right, you could see it. You could so, put all the pieces together. Yeah, but I was what's you, what you call a dry drunk. I'll use like 12-step talk. I wasn't using any steps or traditions. I, I go to AA meetings and I go to a lot of them and I, and I still do for years. I have for years. And uh, my life started to open up and it started to become more balanced and calm once I started to have boundaries and almost rules and guidelines that 
that the 12 steps and the 12 traditions gave me. Right. That structure that you can, you can, you can build your life around that structure. Yeah. Yes. I had no structure in the beginning as a child, I didn't allow it so that I, my parents, I just didn't, I fought them on it. And that's why I eventually left because they were forcing structure on me and, uh, and good for them. That's what parents should do. But uh, I just didn't have it. And then it went into my adulthood and I just never learned these things. I wouldn't allow it. Right. Yeah. It wasn't because my parents didn't cry. And it's like, I I think that's a lot about what recovery is, right? I mean, getting sober is is the first part, right? So you can kind of see it, but all this other mental health work is, is the recovery part and having a structure to do that. However, that's going to look for you. If it's 12 step or uh, smart recovery or whatever it is, it's having that structure. So you can start to put the pieces together. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Community. I've learned community whether it's what we just talked about, like a 12-step group or smart or a church community I found is so key and just being around people, being social, like not isolating those things. It took me 10 years not to isolate. I mean, these things took me years to, to learn. Right. So as you started to work on this, um, you said you did therapy for like a year, but that didn't work. So then- The then- therapy helped. The therapy, I went to therapy once a week for a few years and it did help. It, it, it just- it broke the ice, but what I really needed was I needed real boundaries. I needed to talk to somebody. I needed to tell people what I've done. I needed to get it all out, you know? So and with therapy, in my case, he was great, but he kind of just agreed with everything I said and just kind of sent me on my way. And he was great though, but finding a sponsor and mentors that would actually call me on my stuff and like, go, no, that's not right. Or they would, they would, we wouldn't argue, but we would just, they would help me learn and help me see what I wasn't seeing. Right. It's so, like that living in consultation, right? right? You, you have people yes. who can give you honest feedback, you know, give you the feedback you need to hear when you've got that kind of crazy thinking. And it's like, Hey, wait a minute. That, that's maybe that's not a good idea. You should probably shouldn't do that or, or don't BS yourself. Come on, let's, you know need that. And then all, you know, like what you're saying, having community also deals with all the the shame and the guilt of, of past choices that we've made and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more as you start to kind of work through these mental health issues and you're, you're going to this. And so how do you start dealing with the, with the bipolar once you, once you know that that's what you got? Okay. So that would take, Gosh, that took some time. The, the bipolar two, depression, anxiety, that took some time. I would say between 2000, 2008 to 2010, we would find the right medication for me, low dose. I mean, I don't even mind talking about that stuff. I, I, take, a, I take Celexa, which is an antidepressant. I take what's called Depakote. It's an antipsychotic mm-hmm. and, and also an, an anti, uh, it does something else for people like it helps people with seizures, but, but I never had right, seizures. Yeah. But, so I found low doses. It, it helps me stay balanced, right? It's, I don't get, to, I still, I still experience depression. I still get anxiety, but I don't have those roller coaster mood swings I used to have where I would, one minute I want to run five miles and the next minute I just want to sleep for two days. I don't have those anymore. That's been years, but it took some time. So it kind of smooths it out yeah. so that you can, you, you, you can be more productive. Yeah. I could keep a job and like, I could keep a job. I could work 40 hours a week. I had, it was amazing to be able to, I could be in, a, I could start to be a functioning adult. Right. And uh, so, yeah, with, with the 12 step program, the therapy, the psychiatrist, the medication, 
the reading, the material that I've been reading over the years. It, it took a lot. I mean, exercise is big for me. Diet is huge. So it's like almost like pulling all, all of your resources together and using it all to create the life that you want, you know, to get that structure, to, to get medication if you need medication. Some medications are, are really helpful for some people, like you're an example of. It's true. I don't think anything's a one fix. I don't think AA can solve all my problems. I don't think I can rely on medication only. I mean, I got to get eight hours of sleep every night. I got to eat vegetables. I take my vitamins. You know, it's like I exercise is huge for someone that suffers from depression. Oh, totally. I learned for me that it was like, essentially, I didn't produce enough serotonin and I produced too much adrenaline, norepinephrine. I was like, on a chemical level, that's what my problem was. And so once we knew how to look at it, then we were going somewhere. So I have a chemical imbalance and I, did, and I can't just ignore it. If I ignore it, I get sick. Yeah, no, totally. I think that's so helpful for a lot of people to hear that because a lot of people feel like, oh, if I'm at a, you know, I should be able to do this all on my own. But if you do have like a chemical imbalance, drugs can really help even that out and can be so helpful. And I think you're an example of that. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So tell me a little bit about you started writing and tell me about how, how that started to happen. Yeah, I was writing in my 20s, right? I wrote a book when I was 24, 25, but it was just, it was horrible. So I just, <laughs> I had it edited once. It was horrible. I just, I threw, I burned it. It was all ceremonial. Yeah. And I yeah. wrote, I wrote I've a had some stuff like that. <laughs> I wrote a script when I was 20, 24 and I sold the script. I got that sold. Nothing ever happened with it, but I sold it. And it was like an amazing feeling to get paid for writing. So I'm like, I'm a writer but nothing really ever came from it. And I stopped working with people I was working with. And so for years, I just stopped writing. And then in 2008, so I was 39. I was on my way to work. I was, I was, I was at the time a concierge for a major hotel in San Francisco where I live. And I was biking to work and I got hit by a taxi cab. I got hit and I just bounced off the side of the car. And um, I went to the hospital because I wanted to make sure I wasn't broken in any way. And it was just a concussion. I, I went home immediately. And then like the next day, I just started writing. And I haven't stopped since. Like I've written four books since, since June of 2018. Wow. And um, I've pre-published two. I've published two and they're being redone. To just I'm learning as I go what it takes to make a, a good book. <laughs> so like... Right. Well, yeah, that's how like you the, do like it, right? Copies, you gotta, the copies you gotta... that you have, I have, I'm redoing those copies. Oh, oh you know really? I mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's so a lot I have of work. Like the, I, have like the, the, I have the original here. You have the originals. Yeah, those yep. are the originals. Right. So there's like there's some typos, and I trust me, I know. Yeah. And so I'm working on that, and I, uh, I got a, it was, it's been an amazing ride, because about a, about a year ago, I got a publisher and an agent, and that's weird to just like, oh, I have a publisher. Right. And uh, it's, they're, out, they're out of New York. And, um, and I'm here and now I'm starting to, but, but yeah, the books, I just, they just started coming out. Like I had all these, I had all this, these thoughts and information and I just wanted to get it out. And I was like, I'll just write a book. And it just hasn't stopped since. So, wow. Just, there you go. The, the first book was easy. Cause it, I just told my story, junk knowledge. I just told my story. Like I'm talking to you. I just wrote it down. My second book I was at an AA meeting at a place called the Dry Dock in San Francisco. It was, um, I think, a noon meeting. And I never went to noon meetings. And there was this young woman in her late 30s. And she had, I remember she said she has 12 years sobriety, but she's depressed and she's suicidal. 
and she doesn't understand what to do. And she has bipolar disorder and she's sad. And, and she was just started crying. And she was just like, I feel like nothing's helping. I feel like I'm lost, this and that. And I was like, I got to write a book about dual diagnosis. I'm going to, because I, I know what that's like. Yeah. So because, yeah. Of, because of her, really, I was like, I'm going to write a book about her and me and the other people that are, some people will never share in a meeting that they're going through it and they just disappear. A lot of bad things can happen. Maybe they're lucky and they work it way they work through it. But a lot of us just kind of exist in misery at some of us. Right. So sharing your story and saying, Hey, look, you know, this is a real issue. Yeah. I want to give that back to other people who might experience that, that they can get better. Yeah. It just takes, I think for someone like myself, what you would call outside help, like trusting the medical industry, a lot of addicts, especially in like where I go to AA meetings, a lot of us do not trust doctors and right. Like doctors and God, a lot of us have issues with doctors and God. Right. Yeah. And, and I, right. And it's like, I mean, I went to Catholic school for a few years. Right. So I was and for some reason I created this fear of God. God has never done anything bad to me. And whether it's real or not, I believe in something, but I learned to do that in AA. So, so having higher power, having doctors and medication and all this stuff. And I'm like, I, I can't lose, right. you know, and that's how I kind of feel. Yeah. Like, and being yeah. open to that, that process and, and being open that there's help out there. And, and what I always tell people is like, look, if you're with a therapist or with a doctor and it doesn't feel right, go find another one. Go, exactly. get, go get somebody else. Try something different. Don't give up keep going. I think replicating that friends and family, some of our friends, some of our family aren't good for us. Yeah. It's, it's like, you might have to get rid of an uncle or an aunt or a brother. You might have to love from a distance, I guess you say. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's like, and there's other ways there's to get help. There's CODA. There's, there's, I mean like codependency, there's, there's ACA meetings, there's sex addicts, anonymous, there's meetings for everything. Right. There's so much support. I think the problem is that shame keeps people from reaching out. You know, it's like, I'm broken, I'm bad. And, and if anybody sees that, they're just going to confirm how bad I am. So I'm just going to hide and isolate and I'm not going to share my story because, you know, yeah, I'm just too shameful to do that. Yeah, for sure. It's true. And, you know, a handful of us will just say, screw it and do it anyways. <laughs> and I think that's great. I mean, that's why, you know, I, I love that you're writing these books because you know, someone's got to hear that story. And when they hear someone else or hear your story, even on this podcast, and you talk about it, and you share it, someone's going to listen to that. And they're going to be able to go, whoa, man, you know, he got help. Maybe I can get help. Maybe I recognize it. And, and maybe there's support for me out there. For sure. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, because I mean, that's, that's what we got to do, right? Oh, I agree, for sure. Give our story out there. However we do it, we do it in podcasting, we do it in writing, we do it in art, whatever it is. It's like, get your story out there so other people know that you're not alone. It seems like that's what you're doing. And yeah, I'm trying. It's been fun. Yeah, no. And that's the fun part. Once you get past all that, that shame about it and you work through all that mess and your history and stuff, it does. It becomes, uh, uh, recovery becomes fun. It becomes something meaningful it's becomes i mean still hard work sometimes but yeah so tell me a little bit more about some of your upcoming stuff you're going to be doing gosh well i mean now it's like i mean book wise i'm about to publish my third book which it's not related to, to the things we're talking about 
it's just about my experience working in hotels and, you know, and uh, being a concierge. Cause I recently left because of the COVID I was laid off. Right. And uh, right. A lot of us, I mean, we were all the, the hotel restaurants, so many industries were obliterated. And I saw it coming, so I uh, I definitely saw it coming because <laughs> I, I went to I went to Sweden for a week, and when I got back, I was I was laid off two weeks later. Whoa! And uh, so I'm like, I come back from this beautiful experience, <laughs> and I come back to the hotel in San Francisco, and everybody's nervous and not talking, and it was really weird. I was like, I'm going to start looking for another job, but uh, as and I was lucky that I started uh, briefly. I worked with a um, a large luxury grocery food chain for six weeks. And I got this call to run this building. I live in this building in the neighborhood of the Tenderloin district in, in San Francisco. And I'm running this huge 70 unit building now out of nowhere. So I'm running that and I work from home and it, it's, it's been a beautiful experience, like getting to know everybody, helping a community, starting to volunteer. That's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's starting to volunteer with this uh, Tenderloin uh, reach out program where we're writing about story. We're writing and talking to people on the streets, what's their experience, how do they want to make the neighborhood better? What are they, what are they seeing? So I've been doing that. I just started, I just started delivering groceries to senior citizens that can't leave their buildings. So I've been volunteering a lot. I'm like, I have time. I work a full-time job, but I'm, I'm here and I can, I have flexibility. I can use my time to be of service to, to anybody. Right. To help. Yeah. To help. And I just, there's a lot of senior citizens that can't go outside because of all this COVID or they don't feel safe going outside and they need help. And I was like, Oh, I can do this. You know, so just right. two blocks here, two blocks there, deliver whatever. And uh, that's been, so continuing your mission to help. Yeah. It's why not? And, and I just took, I just took over. I'm helping my uncle. He has this, this luxury um, wallpaper business and he's like, take over the customer service side of this for me. So I'm doing that. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll try it. So I'm helping him awesome. out. It's, it's amazing to be kind of a part of a family business right now. So it's, a lot of good things are happening. That's great. You know? That's awesome. For, for me, for me, a lot of good things are happening. Yeah, but that's awesome. But I also think that's part of recovery too, is, you know, you can organize your life. So th- those possibilities come into your life because you're open to them and you're, you're in a place to, to receive it too. So, well, Marcus, I want to say thank you for coming on to the podcast. If anybody listening out there and they're hearing your story, what would be the one thing you'd want to, want to tell them? The one thing, I mean, it's kind of abstract, maybe. I just, I think the beginning of a healthy, successful life for anybody, whether it be someone who's suffering from addiction or mental illness, or a a loss of a job or a loss of anything, a child, a parent, a, a loved one, I think it's reaching out. Just reach out. There's people going through, there's so many people going through what, where you, me, her are going through just reach out, like just reach out and don't worry about feeling like a fool play. I think like, like some people play a fool for romance, like play a, don't be afraid to be the fool for your life. Be your, be your number one advocate because in the beginning, sometimes there's nobody but you. For some of us, there's no one but you and you have to be the spark. So just do it. Like someone out there is going to like listen and want to help you. And then they're going to bring a lot of help to you and your life's going to take off. Wow. So, and, and you know, it's, that's kind of what it is. Just be, just be willing to try. So I think that is so well said, Marcus. And uh, anybody listening, do exactly what he said. <laughs> do exactly what Marcus said. So how can people find you? If they want to reach out to you, how can they get a hold of you? Oh, sure. 
I'm yeah, I'm open. I'm an, I'm open. I live in San Francisco in the Tenderloin District, but uh, my email address is uh, marcusmarchand at gmail.com. And that's spelled M-A-R-Q-U-E-S-M-A-R-C-H-A-N-D at Gmail. That's just an easy, straightforward way to get a hold of me. Just reach out and say, hey. Awesome. Marcus, thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. I appreciate you yeah. reaching out to me and sending me your books. I Thanks a lot. Yeah. Dwayne, let's stay in touch. You're the best, man. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast as normal. All the show notes will be at the addictedmind.com forward slash 107. Please rate and review us in iTunes. Take the time to write a review. That really does get us a lot of exposure and I really appreciate it. And I really like to know how this podcast is helping others and it gets this podcast a lot of exposure. So I really appreciate that. And for all the people out there who have done it, thank you. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day, stay safe, and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline, and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking, and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober, and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host, and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety, and lots of how twos for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.